0: Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction.
1: I'm Charlie Jean Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who obsesses about science. And in this episode, we're going to talk about fear of robots
0: and fear of AI and machine learning and all the other things that are related to this issue. It's huge in pop culture right now. Westworld just came back. Um, It's huge in science culture and technology culture right now. And so we're going to look at the ins and outs of what it means that our latest fear is something that actually doesn't exist quite yet. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, Westworld is back. Uh, It's a show that has always been kind of about fear of robots, but also sympathy for robots. But We've also had a spate of movies like Ex Machina, which are exploring, again, kind of sympathy for robots, but also why they are fucking terrifying. Chappie. Oh, yeah. Chappie is a good one. Um, And then there's been these sort of terrible AI movies um, about, you know, everything from just AI being scary to things like the movie transcendence with Johnny Depp, where he uploads his brain into a computer. Right.
1: Yeah. No, he decides to become immortal because he's dying of cancer or something. And so he uploads his brain and unfortunately turns evil and they have to destroy the internet. It's exactly. We had to destroy the internet to save it. Yeah. (laughs) To save us from,
0: from Johnny Depp. Um, (laughs) Not to be confused with the 90s movie Virtuosity, which was also about a serial killer um, who uploads his brain into the internet. Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe. That's right. Uh, (laughs) Mostly what I remember from that film is his butt. It was like a naked butt scene. Anyway, so the thing about these, these television series and films is they're also coming at a time when... Uh, People who are developing AI and people who are thinking in academia about AI are also sounding the alarm about what might happen next if we have robots who have human equivalent artificial intelligence or what's sometimes called strong artificial intelligence. Um, Over at Oxford in England, um, Nick Bostrom runs a group on ethics and AI where they think a lot about how AI actually represents a kind of existential threat. And then here in the states, uh, Elon Musk, uh, entrepreneur extraordinaire, who's sending us to space with SpaceX, and is drilling holes in the ground with the Boring Company, but also has a bunch of automated factories, uh, is and self-driving also, cars and self-driving cars, which are kind of the cutting edge of, you know, AI as we know it uh, and robotics as we know it. He has helped publicize um, the idea that, again, we need to be fearing AI, that developers need to be building safeguards in uh, far beyond what we're already building into typical kind of computer systems. So it's a, I hate to use the word zeitgeist, zeitgeist but it's the zeitgeist. Like we're all <clears throat> fucking terrified apparently um, of, of this kind of blur of um, robot and AI. So
1: yeah, and a self-driving car just killed someone for the first time recently. That was the first fatality inflicted that we know of by a self-driving car. And we're using drones that are, you know, semi-autonomous, I guess, to kill people on a regular basis now. They're not fully autonomous yet, but they will be at some point. Yeah, and the military
0: is certainly working on that. And there are, of course, robots that have been deployed uh, in the military for search and rescue missions and for reconnaissance missions. And so... This is becoming a part of everyday life for people who are in the military.
1: Yeah, and actually there's been a spate of stories about soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere who became super emotionally attached to the robots they worked with. They had bomb disposal robots or you know, other kinds of robots that were helping them in their jobs. And if the robot became damaged, they'd be like, we have to fix it. It's our friend. And even though it was just a mechanical device, it didn't really have a personality, they would get super attached to it. But at the same time, the... Notion of robots being integrated into the military complex does mean at some point we will have autonomous killing machines that will be out there, probably in our streets as well as the streets of foreign cities. Uh, They kind of dealt with this a little bit in the RoboCop reboot a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, That'll be out in our streets and, you know, choosing when to kill civilians. And if you think that human police officers are trigger happy when faced with a civilian that they think might, according to some rubric be a threat. Just imagine once it's a robot making those decisions and how controversial that's going to be.
0: Well, I'm kind of robot identified. And so I always think that if we had, say, robotic police officers or autonomous cars, that they would actually do a better job than people just because they would have the ability to respond more quickly to inputs. Uh, Maybe they would have less bias. um, Although, of course, now we know that algorithms can be just as biased as people. So Maybe you would just have robotic police officers running around doing racial profiling even more than humans do. I don't know. So let's talk a little bit about the history of the robot, both in science fiction and reality. Where does the term come from, Charlie?
1: I mean, the term robot comes from a play uh, by a Czech playwright uh, named Carol Kapek I'm probably mispronouncing that name. Called R.U.R., which stands for Rossum's Universal Robots. And robot comes from the Czech word robota, means meaning work. And basically, these they weren't actually even mechanical creatures in the original stage play. They're just kind of genetically engineered or grown they're, in a vat. They're grown in a vat, so they're
0: biological, which I, I always thought was kind of interesting because um, you see a little bit of that. Throughout early sci-fi, you have sort of biological uh, robots early on, kind of like Frankenstein, I guess.
1: Yeah, and then, you know, it really took off with things like Metropolis, Fritz Lang's movie in which somebody creates a robot duplicate of his daughter and she kind of leads an uprising. She leads a worker uprising, a human worker uprising. And it's actually kind of a weirdly
0: anti-union film because the evil robot is the one who is fomenting the worker revolt. And she is evil. That's very clear in the film. And the good uh, Maria, uh, not the robot Maria, would of course, you know, cares deeply for the poor. But, uh, you know, she would never lead them in a revolt. So this this theme of revolution, whether you think it's a bad revolution or a good revolution, is kind of built into these early robot stories because RUR is also about a robot uprising. And then I think it's in the 50s that we start to kind of see a diversification in what robots might be. I mean, we get the classic era of Isaac Asimov's um, iRobot, where he invents the three laws of robotics, which we are still thinking about today, including in laboratories, people mm-hmm. are, are thinking about what, how would we have something like the three laws to limit robots' uh, behavior. And you get things like, also in the 50s, you get things like Robbie the robot, like a cute, friendly robot. Mm-hmm. So you get the first glimmers of nice robots, mm-hmm. which we start to see a lot you know, leading up into things like Star Wars, where we have like R2-D2, who, when I was a kid, I really wanted to be R2-D2. <laughs>
1: Don't get technical with me. What mission? What are you talking about? I've just about had enough
0: of you. That was a robot who was cute and nice and very competent. And so, you know, not at all scary.
1: Yeah. And it's actually interesting to note as a side note that in the middle of all these scary alarmist you know, movies like Ex Machina or whatever that are about robots that can kill us. We also have seen Star Wars making a huge comeback. And the hallmark of Star Wars is that the robots are always freaking adorable you always have robots like BB-8 and R2-D2 as well, and K-2SO from Rogue One. The robots often steal the show. They're often the best characters. And they're just the cutest. They're super adorable and lovable, and they're a huge part of what people love about Star Wars. And it's interesting that that's coming back right at the time that we're having all this anxiety. But yeah, cute robots are huge in classic sci-fi. Doctor Mm -hmm. Who had K-9, which was a robot dog.
0: The original iRobot novel why Asimov, interestingly, is not about fearing robots. It's actually, if you go back and reread it, um, the Frames, it's a set of short stories about robots, and the frame story is about a robo-psychologist who is treating a bunch of robots that have gone crazy because of the fact that these three laws of robotics actually don't work. They, they contradict each other and they cause problems. And each of the stories in iRobot is about a problem caused by contradictions between those three laws that humans have imposed on robots. So we've literally been driving robots insane by trying to program them to obey us.
1: The first law is as follows, a robot may not harm a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Number two, a robot must
0: obey orders given it by qualified personnel unless those orders violate rule number one. In other words, a robot can't be ordered to kill a human being. Uh, rule number three, a robot must protect its own existence, after all it's an expensive piece of equipment, uh, unless that violates rules
1: one or two
0: the three laws are all about Mm -hmm. put humans before robots obey humans um, human survival is more important than your own which are all not the kinds of things that a real living organism would believe because real living organisms are are, they want to they want to survive their survival is paramount
1: so are you saying that your cats would not place your survival before their own (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I have programmed them extensively. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, they would, be, they would be indifferent to my survival as long as they kept getting food. But the thing that's interesting is that when we, the, the sort of popular Will Smith uh, film, iRobot, which is only extremely loosely based on, on, Isma, on, on Asimov's work. In fact, loose is in fact a loose <laughs> term <laughs> for how loosely it is based. But it's all about how robots become evil. So it's like this story, this, this set of short stories that were really nuanced, that were all about kind of how humans are actually, you know, kind of being cruel to robots and driving them mad and how robots are kind of vulnerable to humans and vulnerable to our programming has turned into this really simplistic story about how robots are going to gang up on us and destroy us all. So that kind of tells you what has changed over that 50 year period or 60 year period. Robots have gone from being something that is almost totally fictional and that we kind of have a a nuanced understanding of. And now that we actually have robots kind of appearing in our factories around the world and in our cars, um, or now that our cars are becoming robots, it seems like fear has become a much more common uh, response to them. Let's talk about some of the themes in modern science fiction that deal with why we should be afraid of robots.
1: The most classic robot narrative is the kind of Skynet or Battlestar Galactica one where basically they want to kill all of us or they want to enslave us or some combination of the two. They want to, you know,
0: turn us into batteries like in the <laughs> Matrix. I actually I know that's completely dumb and it doesn't make any <laughs> sense on, on any kind of like level where you're trying to be realistic. But I like the metaphor that we're being turned into batteries for robots
1: it's a cute metaphor i mean there are a lot of ways that yeah, they cute, could have done it, it would have been more plausible like the idea that they were using people for like software processing or whatever or that there yeah, was some reason we were they were like needed, hard drives or something yeah, they, there was some reason they needed like a bunch of meat brains that had a certain <laughs> level of sophistication because they could just use chihuahuas as batteries and not have to worry about humans and like what kind of matrix would they make for the chihuahuas like what would the chihuahua <laughs> matrix look like it would just be like you know endless like running around i'll tell around. you what it would not be it would
0: not be freaking taco bell ads the chihuahuas would be like fuck that <laughs> i'm so sick of the way you've been representing us in your pop culture yeah it'd be like humans in little hats being like hey eat some human meat time
1: for the chihuahua <laughs> uprising <laughs> anyway, so, you know, there's like the classic thing where they want to wipe us out and, you know, sometimes their motivations for doing so are kind of sketchy. It's just that, well, you're there and you fi- they figure that you humans will at some point try to kill us if we don't kill you first or we need resources that you have access to. We want to convert the entire planet Earth into just like raw materials to build our robot army. We don't need an atmosphere, so why do you need an atmosphere?
0: Yeah, I mean, but I think lurking in almost all of these stories is that early RUR story from the early 20th century, which is these are robots who've been built to be slaves and they're having a slave uprising. Because I, I can't think of a single one of these films where it's like, there's no reason why. Other right. than other than maybe in Terminator, where, yeah. where it's actually, there is a reason because Skynet... I mean, it's a little bit like War Games, Mm -hmm. where Skynet really has only been programmed to do one thing, which is to kill. And when Skynet kind of comes to life, that's its only motivation. In a panic, they try to pull the plug. Skynet fights back. Yes. It launches its missiles against the targets in Russia. Currently... AI researchers who are worried about, um, AI's kind of becoming conscious. That's one of the things they worry about is that, well, if we've programmed it to do only one thing, like what if we've only programmed it to, to build paperclips and it comes to life and it becomes super intelligent and it just turns everything into paper paperclips. Right. Um, so basically Skynet is the like nuclear war of paperclip paradigms. Mm. <laughs> then there's also, I feel like there's the fear that robots are just going to surpass us and so they won't crush us exactly they'll just sort of turn us into pets and right we'll be kind of these feeble sad creatures i, th- I feel like um wally is in mm-hmm. some sense falling into that category a little bit yeah because i mean, I mean yeah. that's partly self-imposed i mean the humans turn themselves into pets <laughs> in kind a of way. yeah uh but the robots are the only good characters left and they're kind of caring for the humans in a certain way and also caring for the earth
1: yeah I mean, there's always the classic sort of, like, I have no mouth and I'm a scream thing where, like, an evil computer traps the last surviving humans and basically just tortures them forever, kind mm-hmm. of. But also, yeah, that just that the robots decide to keep humans as, like, yeah, an example of, like, we'll just keep a few of them around to show what they used to be like or, yeah, you know. We'll-
0: and then there's the more immediate fears, um, sort of near future fears, um, like robots will take our jobs and mm-hmm. we'll be poor. And I think that that's certainly what's happening in Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Um, even in the new Blade Runner film which I think, you know, critics were really divided on, but one of the things that film did really well was highlight the fact that automation had created this mass unemployment and mass poverty on the planet. And we see I mean, we see these kids living in a giant garbage dump which used to be the city of San Diego. And that's what humans are doing is they're sorting garbage. Uh, and, you know, that's that's a good job, probably.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously, some of it is just that we live in a world of haves and have nots where the breach between the two is widening all the time. But also there's just the fact that, yes, in real life, robots are taking our jobs. Um, there's a whole category of jobs that people have today in 2018 that probably 10 years from now, a lot of them will be automated. And a lot of these just like really annoying, repetitive tasks that we need people to do right now will eventually be just be done by machines because you don't need an intelligent, adaptable creature with all these like complicated joints to be able to just move a box from one side of a room to the other over and over and over again.
0: Yeah. And I was I was recently talking to the economist Brad DeLong, who writes a lot about automation and technological revolutions. And he was saying, first of all, that the early industrial revolution was sort of about imagining what if people could be like robots. And you know the goal of it was kind of to make people into robots and then just replace them with robots. So we're just kind of now playing out the logic of like the late 19th century's um, industrial revolution. But he also said that you know, it's not just about people's manual labor being replaced. As, as many of us know, you know, plenty of algorithms are around to replace symbolic analytic labor, right. the kind of stuff that supposedly only humans could do with our magnificent brains. <laughs> and Brad was tormenting me by pointing out that um, journalism is, of course, going to be soon done entirely by algorithms.
1: I mean, there'll be a bot, basically, like not a robot, but a bot. Yeah. That'll so just write the best headline. And it'll be like the most exciting, clicky, <laughs> perfect headline that everybody will love. Right.
0: Or it'll just be written by like some kind of, you know, psyops group in Russia. Uh, and right. that's, I think that leads to another fear, which is that robots will become so good at doing this kind of mental labor that they'll start hacking our brains, you know, and, and controlling our minds. Just the way we tried to control their minds with the three laws of robotics, so maybe maybe we deserve it.
1: Yeah, there'll be the three laws of humans, you mm-hmm. know, you must obey anything a robot tells you to do. Uh-huh. You Always
0: to... put the robot survival ahead of your own.
1: Yeah exactly. Um, if
0: you just fill in the word corporation <laughs> <laughs> for robot yeah. um, I think you've got like every cyberpunk novel ever
1: written. I mean who was it that was saying that fear of the AI is basically fear of large corporations. I think it was.
0: That was Ted Chang who right. just wrote a great article about that which you can Google Ted Chang AI corporations. AI. Right. It's yeah, an amazing he, article. He basically makes the point that that, you know, a lot of these fears re- really are fears of something else. You were saying to me uh, earlier that you think that part of it is that people see robots kind of as dead, sort yeah. of an un- uncanny valley kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a thing that is covered in my favorite Doctor Who story of all time, the Robots of Death, <laughs> which is just also the best title. Yeah, robots in death. <laughs> it's about robots that kill people, and you know, that's basically mm-hmm. all it is. And there's this long conversation, somewhere in the middle of episode two, where the doctor talks about, or the doctor and Leela talk about the fact that these robots, Leela is the best companion also. Um, The doctor and Leela, don't at me. The doctor and (laughs) Leela talk about (laughs) the fact that these robots don't have any body language. They don't breathe. They don't move like people. And they're, you know, Leela calls them creepy mechanical men. What did you call those robots? Creepy mechanical men. Yes. You know, people never really lose that feeling of unease with robots. More of them there are, the greater the unease, and of course, the greater the dependence. It's a vicious circle. And they kind of move like the walking dead. They, they kind of seem like they're not really alive, but they're smart, they're intelligent, they respond to you, they have some kind of affect, and it's, it's disturbing, and the idea of a society that's built on these kind of, like, undead people walking around is kind of an unstable kind of fear-driven society where at some point everybody kind of knows deep down that it's all going to come crashing down. And it's that's a, one of the most, like, I love that whole conversation that they have in the middle of that story about this. And I think that that's a common thing that robot stories kind of play on without necessarily commenting on it explicitly. There is often the, just the way in which robots kind of don't quite move like people. Mm-hmm. They move, like, more stiffly. They perhaps, you know, have... Different reactions. They they don't kind of have the same kind of natural behavior as a normal person. And they can seem either like zombies, you know, because they're in the Uncanny Valley and seem not quite alive. Or, you know, perhaps they can seem like people who are kind of lacking some crucial elements of, of what we consider human emotion and behavior. And I've seen it played both ways. Like data on Star Trek The Next Generation is clearly kind of alive in some sense, but also kind of missing something crucial, especially in the early episodes. But it is, I think, part of why we fear them is this instinctive fear of people who are kind of not quite right in some way. Yeah,
0: well, and I often think now, especially um, robots are used to talk about what it means to be non-neurotypical. Right. And I definitely think that uh, it's very easy to look at Data's arc, his character arc on Star Trek as being about... What does it mean to be non-neurotypical? And how do you, what if you don't know how to read emotional cues? What if you don't know how to send emotional cues? How do you learn to do that? And, you know, again, in a lot of films and stories that are sympathetic to robots, that's what we see. In fact, Martha Wells, just utterly incredible series, which starts with the book, All Systems Read, is excellent at at sort of portraying this because it's about, it's about kind of, it's a cyborg. It's a part biological, part mechanical creature who's telling the story from the first person. And it's very clear that it's a person, but it is also non-neurotypical. It does not like emotional connection with people for a lot of good reasons, (laughs) partly because it's used as a machine. So it's been horribly abused, but it's a, it's a fantastic portrait of what it means to Be very human, but just not think the way we are led to believe humans should think. Which, of course, we're all kind of (sighs) non-neurotypical. Nobody has a perfectly typical and normal thought process. And so this is a way of exploring what happens when you're really at the edges of that spectrum. But also, I think, I mean, you were mentioning robots seeming like dead men. And yet, so many robots
1: are women. Yeah, they really are. In fact, robots are frequently depicted as feminized even if they're not actually female-bodied. But in fact, sci-fi is full of female robots. You know, going back to the 1970s when there was like this craze for including fembots in everything. (laughs) Like the Bionic Woman (laughs) show had fembots turning up in every episode and it was like... Constantly, anytime you saw a woman who wasn't, you know, Jamie Summers, her face would be ripped off to reveal <laughs> some kind of clockwork thing. And Well, and um, there's the
0: Stepford Wives, yeah. which kind of cast a long shadow over the 1970s fembot kind of...
1: Yeah. Camera. And there's a bunch of other kind of lady robots popping up in pop culture, including um, Hajime Soriyama did all these like very kind of fetishy paintings of lady robots where they are, look like they're kind of posing seductively. Yeah, like cheesecake. Yeah, of. cheesecake pictures of robots. And, you know, a bunch of just like kind of the idea of the sexy robot is a thing that kind of starts being more of a big deal. It starts, I guess, Star Trek actually has some lady robots who try to seduce Kirk back in the 60s as well.
0: I also think that we're still seeing that. I mean, that's, you know, Ex Machina is really playing with that trope a lot. And it's tempting to say that something like Ex Machina is turning that trope on its head, which I definitely definitely think it is in some ways. But it's also 100% in line with the idea of a deadly woman.
1: Why did you give her sexuality? An AI doesn't need a gender. She could have been a gray box.
0: Hmm. Actually, I don't think that's true. Can you give an example of consciousness at any level, human or animal, that exists without a sexual dimension? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what is what is a fembot if not just a machine that is sexy that can kill you? Right. Uh, And so, and that, and Ex Machina is pretty much just serving us that uh, once again. I mean, we sympathize with her a lot more than maybe we do with the fembots, you know, in the Stepford
1: Wives. And pop culture is just full of sexy deadly lady robots, including like the movie Eve of Destruction.
0: Okay. I wanted to say, (laughs) so Eve of Destruction, which is an 80s film, which probably none of you have watched, but you should, is a little bit more complicated, much like Ex Machina, because in that film, we do have an evil female robot. The reason why she's such a psycho and is about to kill a bunch of people is because her brain is modeled on the brain of a female scientist who was raped. And so what happens is Anytime someone who sees this hot fembot uh, and calls her a bitch, because it's the 80s, and of course anyone who sees a hot lady basically is like, hey, bitch, want to make it with me? She just kills them because she has the brain of a traumatized rape victim. Um, and so I, I would love to see a remake of that film where it's just like a straight-up rape revenge film, and it's just like, I'm going after the men who try to rape you.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I think that there's, there definitely could be some a new spin on that for like the Me Too era or whatever. Yeah, seriously. Where like a female scientist decides to create like, yeah,
0: it's like, this is what season two of sweet vicious is going to be. It's (laughs) like the hacker character is going to build a robot and it's going to be the three of them. Now the sorority girl, the stoner hacker and the robot.
1: But yeah, getting just circling back to my favorite Dr. Who story robots of death, which I'm obsessed with. I'm sorry. There's that whole thing where like the robots are kind of feminized in that episode and the guy who wants to be a robot puts on all this extra makeup. Like, all the men in that episode are wearing makeup. But this guy puts on, like, extra makeup to make himself look more like a robot. And it really does look like he's just kind of looking more like a girl and more girly, even though he still speaks in, like, a monotone, like, male voice. And, you know, there's this thing in a lot of robot stories where there's kind of a part where they get damaged And you see what's underneath their smooth surface, either with the Terminator where the skin is kind of destroyed and then you see the kind of machine underneath or, you know, some of the casing is stripped away and you see the gears underneath and it's some kind of mixture of body horror, but also... It often feels a little bit erotic, a little bit like being stripped naked.
0: This is, I mean, in, in Westworld, this is just front and center, where it's it's both eroticized and it's body horror. Like when we go into the the area of um, Westworld where they're repairing all the robots and they're all naked, mm-hmm. and some of them are being horrifically tortured, some of them are just being kind of walked through their paces, and it's just this. It's it's intended to be incredibly horrifying.
1: Right. And another uh, sexy, deadly lady robot I want to mention is actually Cameron on uh, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, who was not the first female Terminator that we met. There was actually one in Terminator 3, but she's definitely the best, and she's the one who has the most complicated storyline about her relationship with John Connor and her potential to turn deadly at any time. I think there's at least one episode in which she malfunctions and tries to kill everybody. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean I think what we see as we get closer to the present, um, and to things like Ex Machina and Sarah Connor Chronicles and Westworld is that we are having more and more sympathy for those robot characters. And it goes it's instead of it being a kind of nineteen fifties iRobot scenario where we're kind of in the position of the psychologist looking in on the robot and being, Oh my, you've you've malfunctioned we're looking at the world from the point of view of the robot Mm -hmm. and we're feeling the malfunction, but we're also feeling the malfunctions of the world that have created the problems that the robots are dealing with. And that's certainly the case in Westworld where like, it's very clear that a place like Westworld only exists because the outside world is horribly fucked and just riven by class division and by just uh hyper capitalism and you know total disregard for human life
1: yeah and actually it's sort of baked into the terminator franchise that we have some sympathy or some understanding for the pov of the robot like the first terminator where there's no sympathy for that version of arnold schwarzenegger's terminator but he has this drop down menu where we get to see his reactions and we get to see him choosing between different social responses to different social cues and it's fascinating and hilarious because it is about kind of trying to navigate the complicated world of humans so he can just go and kill some people
0: and also in terminator 2 i would say the terminator is completely rehabilitated Mm -hmm. he becomes as sarah connor says he's the best possible father because Mm -hmm. he'll never leave he'll never abuse the kid Mm -hmm. Uh, i love that scene it's a very very beautiful moment and so What do we learn from all this? I mean, we've been talking about these fears. We've been talking about some of the underlying issues that might motivate them. Obviously, we are, as you said earlier, we're living in a period where people have good reason to fear that automation may replace them at a job. We live in fear that maybe some kind of algorithm will be unleashed that will destroy data that we've put on the internet or that will hack our minds and and change the outcome of political uh, events. And, and we have some evidence that that's already happened. And so, you know, there are real life fears motivating this, but it seems to me that there's also other fears that aren't just about robotics and technology, like we've been talking about, that there's fears around um, women's roles in society, for example.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of, these fears are multi-layered, and they go deep, and they go into a lot of aspects of society because we are talking about robots replacing us, or killing us, or having Standing sex with us. Standing in for us, yeah. Yeah, we haven't really talked about like the thing where like a robot might replace your spouse, like in *Stepford Wives*, or like you mm-hmm. know. But that's a big deal. But you know, a lot of these get into the basic nature of human relationships, and I think it really does go back to the fact that the word "robot" comes from the word for work. Because really, work invades every corner of our lives.
0: Especially today.
1: Yeah. And like, you know, our working situations are colored by the history of imperialism and exploitation and colonialism and racism and misogyny and a bunch of other things in the broader world. And all of our anxieties about work are either anxieties about losing some status that we've had in the past because of who we were or trying to gain some status or having something ripped away from us.
0: And I would say, too, just on a psychological level, uh, for many of us, you know, going to work feels like you when you go into that space, suddenly your brain is being formatted to produce certain things, to function in a certain way, to respond to certain people as if they should have authority over you, even if they're total fucking dickbags. Not Mm. that I've ever been in that situation. Um, but it's, it's a feeling of like you become an automaton, an automaton, even if you're not somebody who's working on an assembly line. In fact, (laughs) even in some ways, it's, it's more so when you're going into a job where you're supposed to be producing something that requires you to use your brain, because then you're actually, your brain is kind of being taken over by a task that is often very boring or repetitive or revolting.
1: Yeah, I think customer facing jobs like customer service or retail or anything where you have to give a series of cordial responses to every single person who comes in, no matter how Obnoxious they are, and your boss can come and screw with you at any time. And you, your drop-down menu of possible responses does not include "fuck you," <laughs> not like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. You can't say that exactly. Um, but I,
0: I also think that what you were saying earlier, you know, about sort of these broader issues uh, around, say, colonialism or racism, also hold true here because so much of the robot narrative comes out of fear about slavery. Yes. Um, you know, we create these workers to be our happy slaves, or at least to be our obedient slaves. And R.U.R., R., the play, you know, comes out, you know, only about a generation or two after slavery is is abolished in the United States. Um, and, of course, it was a European play, but it became very popular in the U.S. And, of course, many other robot stories were popular here in the U.S. And so I think that when... Whenever we think about robots, like we're always sort of haunted by, at least in the United States, uh, that other narrative, that real life narrative of how we took some people and turned them into slaves. And these are stories, of course, of of us taking basically people and turning them into slaves because the whole premise often of these robot stories is that these are human equivalent beings. You know, they may be different in some ways. They may walk differently. They may express themselves differently, but they're basically, people, which is why they revolt, because like <laughs> any thinking being would not be a happy slave. I feel like there is a new wave of um, robot stories that we're telling, um, not just things like Westworld. We're seeing writers like Martha Wells, who I mentioned before, but also authors like Anne Leckie, uh, whose ancillary series, Ancillary Justice et al., ends up being a story about AI. And it's fantastic how it kind of twists into being uh, starting out as kind of one sort of tale and then it ends up being about AI rights, basically. Who, what, what rights do these sentient ships have in the universe? And I think what characterizes these new stories, as I mentioned earlier, they consider the point of view of the robot very sympathetically. And it isn't just understanding the robot as just an automaton. It's, it's a real... Person. It's not like a human necessarily, but it, it has a very complicated relationship with humanity. One of the things, too, I was I was recently at the Tucson Festival of Books on a panel with Nikki Drayden, whose new novel Prey of Gods has a bunch of characters in it who are cyborgs and sort of semi-cyborgs and partly robots. And she made the point that when we think about the future of robotics, we really shouldn't be thinking about robots as being separate from people but that, in fact, we are going to merge with robots. And there's plenty of roboticists who've said that too, which is why I thought her comment was so interesting, because we always imagine AI as being a thing that will evolve outside of us. But I think it's maybe smarter for us as fiction writers, as thinkers in general, to be imagining how will AI supplement us? Like maybe AI won't be a thing out there. Maybe it'll be an implant in our brains, um, just as we might become partial, like our bodies might become partially mechanical. So might our brains. I think that's a really, really important uh, perspective to keep in mind that we're not necessarily, we are really talking about ourselves. We're not necessarily talking about another species. We're just talking about what humans will turn into.
1: Yeah, and as we've discussed, when usually when we tell stories about robots and AI, we're at least partly talking about people and we're at least partly talking about You know, ourselves. I wanted to give a shout out to an older book that I really love called Virtual Girl by Amy Thompson. It's from the early 90s, I think, and it's basically about uh, this AI that is living inside a machine and then its creator decides to give it a humanoid body. Female body. A female body, Yeah. yeah. Part of what I love about it is that basically the main character at first thinks of this female body as being like a peripheral like the way you'd get a printer installed or the way you would get like a webcam or you'd get some other thing, except that it has all these different sensory inputs and it has all these different things that it can do. And so it's sort of like just instead of the body being you, it's like the body is sort of this extension of your attachment. consciousness. It's an attachment. And one of the themes that she sort of deals with throughout the rest of the novel after this character escapes from her kind of pervy creator yeah, um, is the idea that, a lot of other AIs want to have a body but that it's really hard to make that jump because the, the overwhelming thing of being in the world around people all the time and having all these different sensory inputs to deal with is just too much for them and that if they've spent their entire lives living inside a black box basically, you know, only interacting through a keyboard or a webcam or whatever, it's just too hard for them to make the switch. And I think it's interesting because it's a different way of breaking down this kind of distinction between an AI that's disembodied and a robot, which is something that sci-fi kind of obsesses about a lot. And, you know, in some ways we're more scared of robots because they can actually come and kill us in person, even though disembodied AIs can control the internet or do whatever.
0: And they can travel through wires and, like, all kinds of crazy <laughs> things they can take over your smart home. And, yeah. Um, but I was going to say, the funny thing about um, Virtual Girl, which is also a book that I love, is that, you know, roboticists like, for example, Cynthia Brazil, who spent a lot of time at MIT working on robots, she really feels, and I think other roboticists feel too, that, that consciousness kind of comes from being physically embodied.
1: Huh. And it's not like
0: she believes that her robots are conscious, I should make that clear, but that if we were to have some kind of emergent consciousness that it would come from that experience of of moving around in the world huh. and she just bases that on human development and how babies learn and how babies learn by interacting with huh. the environment with their hands and stuff like that so which doesn't mean she's right but i i always kind of loved that idea that we we have this fetishized brain in a box trope, I think, in mm-hmm. sci-fi. You know, Hal being, Hal the robot from 2001 being like the perfect example of that. Right. Brain in a box. Um, and she kind of claims like, you know, look, we're never going to have a brain in a box. Like, we might have boxes with things in them that can do some thinking, but if we really wanted to have something like strong AI, it would have to be in a body. Which, huh. again, I don't know if that's w- interesting. W- we won't know. And I think that's what's kind of interesting about all of this stuff, is that All of these fears that we're having and that we're talking about, the fears that we have in real life, the fears that we're expressing in science fiction are all about something that doesn't exist yet, which is whatever you want to call it, human equivalent AI, strong AI, something that we would recognize as being like us, but in a mechanical body or Mm -hmm. in a box maybe. And I, I always come back to the fact that if such a thing does emerge. If we invent it if, it, if it kind of is an emergent property of some system accidentally, it's probably going to be different than what we expected. And that I hope that when that happens, if that happens, that we will just ask the AI <laughs> what it thinks and how it feels, instead of just projecting wildly onto it the way we currently are. And sort of assuming that we know that it's going to become an evil killer or like a cruel seductress or what else that we assume <laughs> it will. Right. Um, and maybe just say, hey, AI friend, what, what do you think? Do you, do you want to have equal pay or <laughs> <laughs> where, where do you see your role fitting into this world? Um, and I bet we'll get a pretty good answer if we can approach it that way.
1: Yeah. And like my final thought actually is just that to underscore something I said earlier, which is that I think a lot of our fear of robots and of the artificial is actually a fear of femininity and of like the intrusion of femininity into the sphere of work and into the sphere of power and control.
0: Yeah. I think femininity but also just any group that has been excluded from the workplace which is why i think there's all of this sort of post-colonial stuff going on as well so i think but i think you're right like especially in the states like that fembot thing Mm -hmm. just will not die and it starts with metropolis you know so it's it goes way back so, all right. Well, uh, you've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. If you like us, um, please say so on iTunes. Um, please let people know about
1: us. Please follow us on Twitter, OACpod. Our Opinions Are
0: Correct is edited at Women's Audio Mission by Veronica Simonetti. And the music was provided by Chris Palmer.